Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 159, and we're going to talk about how to ship your van to Europe. We're going to just go over it generally because it's a pretty big process, but you have to start somewhere. We're also going to talk about a new way to think about power that I think everybody will understand, a product review of a 20-watt solar panel, and a tale from the road about weird things. Because, you know, that's what I do. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And, uh, yeah, several people have written to me and said, hey, why don't you talk about shipping vans overseas? And I thought, uh, well... I don't want to do that because I don't know much about it. So I learned some things about it and now we're going to talk about it. But big caveat here. This is something that you definitely are going to need to do a lot of research on your own. So we can talk about it generally in a podcast, but it's not like I'm going to tell you what I know and then you're going to go off and do it immediately. Watch some YouTube videos. I'll have one recommended in the show notes and uh, do your own research. There's a lot of different ways to do this, but in general... This is how it goes. You have a vehicle, you want to take it to Europe. Okay, that's fine. First, you have to understand Europe is not the same as the United States or Canada. Things are a little different over there. Fuel costs are much more expensive. The roads are much smaller. If you've got a 40-foot diesel pusher that you're wanting to bring to Europe, you absolutely can do that. But it's not going to fit in a lot of places that you might want to go. So think about bringing the right vehicle. Also, if your van cost you $3,000 and you built it out for $500, uh, you know, that vehicle might better stay put here in the U.S. and buy another vehicle when you get to Europe. Because the costs we're talking about here are probably at least $3,000 and then up from there. Say three dollars to $5,000 in general, depending on things, it could go up. So you want to bring a vehicle that has some value. I mean, bring a vehicle that there's a reason to bring over there. Don't just bring your 2010 Grand Caravan because that's what you have. You're better off buying a vehicle in Europe if that's the case. Also understand that Europe uses different power. So whatever you have in your rig for plug-in shore power might not work the same. Also, propane can be more difficult to find, and they use different fittings. So you're going to have some challenges that you'll have to work out yourself. Just know that some things are different over there than over here. But okay, you've gone through that. You've decided you're going to do it. Well, the first thing you have to do is figure out where you're going to ship your vehicle from. And that, that's not as simple as you might think. There aren't that many ports in the U.S. that actually go to Europe. Now, you probably want to be on the East Coast. While you can ship your vehicle from the West Coast, Seattle and L.A., for example, you can imagine how long that's going to take because these vessels don't typically go through the Panama Canal. So they have to go all the way around South America or go all the way around the Cape of Good Hope, depending on which way they go, and then you finally will end up in Europe. Now, if you're going to go to Asia, it would make more sense to go to the West Coast. But if you're going to go to Europe, remember that Europe is at a more northerly latitude than much of the U.S., so you want to go to the Northeast. And for me, if I were going over, I would probably go to Baltimore. Baltimore has a huge automotive shipping port, and that's probably going to be your best bet. If you're in Canada, Halifax that's another good spot. So figure that out. Figure where you're going to send it from. If you're down in Florida, 
you're probably going to have to drive to the northeast because there's not much leaving from Florida. Oddly, as it turns out, where you're going matters less. Prices and procedures are about the same regardless of where you're going, but a lot of people choose Belgium for some very good reasons. They have modern facilities, it's centrally located in Europe, and there isn't as much of a crime problem there as there can be in other ports. But hey, pick wherever you'd like, just make sure that you're going to a place that accepts vehicles shipped this way. How are you physically going to get your van on the boat? Well, there's two different ways to go. If you have a small van and it will fit inside a container, that's going to be much cheaper. Plus, you can put whatever you want in the container. Plus, you can lock the container. We'll get back to that in a minute. This is the best way to go if you can. And the way it works is you are given a container, you drive your vehicle in there, and then you attach your vehicle to the inside of the container so it doesn't roll around. I mean, obviously you're going to put on the emergency brakes, but you will also want to nail in boards to block the vehicle from sliding because this thing's going to be lifted up in the air and then put on the ship. And then you can use the rest of the space for whatever you want. Just understand that you're going to have to go through customs at the other side, so, you know, don't load it up with stuff that might give you trouble in customs, let's just say. But if you had kayaks and things like that, you could certainly put them in there. But if your van's too big, and, you know, if you've got a high-top Sprinter or Ford Transit, yeah, that's too big, you're going to be doing what's called a row-row. And uh, no, that is not how the ship actually gets from one port to another. There's nobody rowing, hopefully. No, it's roll-on, roll-off, which means you drive on the ship and then you drive off. Or more likely, one of their agents drives your van on the ship and then drives it off. Now, what do you have to do to get your van ready? All right, the first thing you're going to do is find an agent. This isn't the same as, like, calling a shipping company. You don't call UPS and say, hey, I want to move my van. There are agents that specialize in this kind of a thing, and they are not the company that does the shipping. They're kind of like travel agents. They associate with these companies and you would deal with them and yes they get paid as part of this but it's worth it because there is a lot of documentation and a lot of things can go wrong you definitely want to use a shipping agent and then the shipping agent will explain everything to you all the fees how long it's going to take and one of the things they'll explain to you is preparing your vehicle you're going to remove all food period everything that's a food item salt and pepper get it out of there spices gone cans of food out no food. It's just going to make things easier in customs. Definitely nothing fresh. No fresh vegetables, no plants, nothing like that because they're going to be concerned about soil contamination and things like that. Also, you have to understand that other people are going to have access to your van. You have to give them a key. They're the ones driving it on. And during the voyage, it's not impossible that a crew member might snag a key and just go kind of hunting around in the vehicles or possibly in the port. The vehicle is going to pass through many hands and not all of them might be honest. So you want to take out anything that is of value. Now, typically from what I've seen doing my little bit of research here is that the things that get stolen are small things. So let's say you left a Bluetooth speaker out, someone might take that. They're not going to take any major components like your sink or your stove or your house batteries. But they will take your other little batteries. And so the recommendation is remove all your electronics. Definitely remove anything that's flammable, including batteries. Take out all your batteries, not your big batteries, not your house batteries, but anything that's movable, take those out. Matches, lighters, lighter fluid, anything like that. Make sure it's gone. Of course, all alcohol, anything like that. You're going to want to make your van as sterile as possible. 
And of course, all your tanks are going to be empty, including your propane tank, though you'll have a quarter tank of fuel so they can move the vehicle around as needed. Another tip is to cover everything with sheets if you can, because dust and dirt and grime can get in your van. I am not entirely sure about this, but it's quite possible that for safety reasons, they will park your van in the ship with the windows down. And the safety of that is that they know they can't lock the keys outside of the van, and if anything goes wrong with the van, they can get in there quickly to deal with it, such as something catching on fire. So that's how the grime gets in there. So you're all set. You're going to bring your van over there day of. What are the expenses looking like? Well, that's a very complicated question to answer. The size of your vehicle dictates the freight cost. That is the cost to ship your vehicle. So how long it is, how tall it is, how heavy it is. You want to be as exact as possible on that stuff. But then there's other fees. So you've got that fee. Then, given the way the market is right now, you may have a fuel surcharge, which is an extra fee to help counter the expense of fuel. You will have a departure port charge, a freight forwarding charge, a forwarding charge on the other end for arrival a terminal charge, and then finally, you will need what's called marine insurance. This insurance simply covers your vehicle for the crossing. That's it. You're going to need other insurance when you get to Europe. That's a separate topic. We're just talking about actually getting your vehicle there. So, okay, that's great. You just arrange a time and you drop your vehicle off. And, I mean, kind of. Shipping ships don't keep the same schedule that passenger ships do. They have a general time frame of they're going to leave this afternoon or whatever. So you will bring your vehicle there, but you don't actually know when it's going to leave. It could be a day or two later. And you also don't know when it's going to arrive. And this is the really tricky part. It could take two weeks to get your vehicle over there. And what are you going to do in the meantime? If you're a full-timer and you're living in your van... Well, you're not going to be living in your van on the ship. <laughs> You've got to get another way over there. You probably are going to fly. And then you have to decide when do you fly. Do you fly early and then hang out in a hotel for a week or two? Or do you stay where you are? Or do you rent a car? Where you, I mean, you have to figure that out. But know that the timing is flexible. You can't count on it to the day. And there may be delays, depending. So, other than that, there you go. You've got your vehicle across. And then you can enjoy Europe, which is a great place for car camping. There's lots of stuff to do there, and you'll have a wonderful time. But make sure you know what you're getting into. Have a good plan. And remember, you have to go through this all again to get your vehicle back into the United States. So, if the idea of spending $15,000 to move your vehicle from the U.S. to Europe and then back to U.S. sounds completely ridiculous then this isn't the idea for you. But if you've got a $200,000 Winnebago Revel and you want to take it into the Pyrenees, well, this $15,000 might not seem like all that much, and yeah, heck, go for it. Good for you. But this is a major investment no matter who you are. It could also be the adventure of a lifetime. So act accordingly. Tech Talk. I was in the Discord room, and an old member of the Discord channel by the name of Repro all of a sudden came out with this missive, and it was a little bit of a rant, but not really. It was basically a new idea for looking at power in your van. And now hear me out. I think they've got a really good idea here, especially if you're somebody who doesn't understand power. So we're not going to talk about amps or watts or any of that. We're going to talk about money. <laughs> okay, so you 
understand money to some extent. Everybody does. It's part of surviving. Okay, so you have money in your wallet or in your bank, you spend money to get things, and then you work to bring money in, or you get an inheritance if you're lucky or whatever, but you've got income, expenses, and then a bank of some sort. And it's exactly the same with your batteries in your van. The batteries in your van are your bank or your wallet, and they can hold so much money. So your wallet can hold $200, your battery can hold 200 amp hours. All right, I said I wasn't going to say amps, but you know what I mean. That's your bank. That's how much you have to spend. Your expenses are what you're spending. You turn on the heater, you're going to go through that really fast. Turn on some LED lights, not so much. They use pennies, whereas a heater uses tens of dollars. Your microwave is going to use a lot, but not for very long. You get the idea. Everything you use that uses power is an expense, and you can't spend more than you have. There's no credit in this situation. So you've got 200 in the bank, and you spend your 200 Okay, that's fine, but then you don't have anything left. But that's where your income comes in. So you have solar power, you have DC to DC charging, maybe you have shore power, you have all these different places that can provide you with income. And the trick is to balance all this, make sure that your expenses are less than your income and your savings will never go down. (laughs) See, it's the same thing with money. The analogy actually works perfectly, and I think people can just get right into it. So this is my new thing now. When people ask about power, instead of using the water analogy, which has been what I've used forever, and the water, you can talk about pressure and things like that. I'll, I'll still use that to some extent. But just understanding the basics of an electrical system, I think the money example works really well. So thank you, Repro, for bringing that up. I think it's a great idea, and I'm going to shamelessly steal it. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. Tales from the road. So I talk about it too much, but yeah, we bought this property down on the Illinois River. Now, when we bought this property... We knew it was a bit strange because uh, I saw it listed and I went down and visited it and I could not figure out what was going on with this property. There's just stuff that's weird. And at first I thought maybe it was an old mine and uh, I thought there might have been a railroad on the site at one point. Well, come to find out that it was an old grain elevator. It was a grain elevator for putting grain on barges on the Illinois River and it was in business from 1939 to 1978. The grain elevator burned down then, and the site was cleared. And so it's four acres of mostly woods, a few flat spots, and a garage, a really old garage that is kind of tilted. (laughs) It looks like the land has slumped a bit, and the concrete slab that the garage is on slumped with it. So it'd be a great place for a boat, because the boat would roll right out. But uh, you might have trouble getting it back in. Anyway, that's what we thought we were buying. And uh, we knew there were some easements on the property. It's an old piece of land. There's an easement for a stagecoach route from like 1870 or something that we have. And uh, it's currently underwater, so I'm not too worried about that easement. And there's an easement by the Bell Telephone Company, which kind of no longer exists. And uh, basically just so they could run phone lines anywhere on the property they needed to. And 
I'll get back to them in a second. And then there's an easement for the road because the land after ours is owned by the college and they need a way to get to it. So that's all fine. Everything's good there. And everything's good in general. But I keep finding weird stuff on this property. This property has a history. So I have a subscription to newspapers.com and I'm able to, you know, go back in time and read all this stuff. And I've learned the history of the bridge. There's a famous bridge there called the Shippingsport Bridge. And I've learned that there are four bridges, not three. And I now own the Wikipedia article on the bridge and uh, I, all this kind of stuff. But I, I found out one of our neighbors died on our property. Uh, in fact, they still live on the street, but one of their great uncles died in a shack on what is now our property. That's a little strange. And I found an outhouse, <laughs> at least I think it was an outhouse, or a vault toilet up in the woods. There's this big concrete vault that I think was a vault toilet. And then just past our property, there's all these little sites that look like they used to have cabins on them. And indeed, if I look at an old topographical map, I see all these little dots. And it looks like there was a whole big campground right next to our property. In fact, some of it was on our property. We found an old well that actually has a hydrant and an electric pump in it, but the cord doesn't go anywhere, so maybe we'll try to resurrect that. And then higher up, you know, this, is, this property is on the river next to some cliffs. Higher up towards the cliffs, I found, I think, a cistern. It's a giant hole in the ground with a huge concrete lid that's round, and I, I, it's really, it's as big as I could put my arms around. It's bigger than that. And uh, I'm assuming it's a cistern. I don't know what else it could be. And at some point I will take the cover off and, you know, send the GoPro down there and see what I can find. Mm, sometimes that's a little scary. And uh, further up in the woods, there are foundations. There was clearly something there. And then I tried to dig a pond down closer to the garage and found another foundation that may have been for a scale house because apparently they would weigh the trucks before they went to the grain elevator. And then we found out that the people selling us the property were not going to empty out the garage. So this is a good sized garage. You, know, you, you probably would call it a car and a half or two car garage even. And it's full. There was a lawn tractor in there. There is a billy goat brush cleaner, all kinds of antique saws and tools, and just all this really bizarre stuff. And, and through Googling and looking for clues, I was able to come up with this story of the people who had it before the people we bought it from. And apparently it was this older guy from in town, and he used this property as his camp. In fact, I found a hand-carved wooden sign that says Camp Paradise on it and has palm trees in it. And I was able to figure out that he had turned this garage into kind of like a summer cabin or even a winter cabin because at one time there was a wood stove in there. And I found a hole for an air conditioner. I even found a toilet paper roll on the wall, but there's no toilet. That was explained later when I found the manual to an old cassette toilet that used to be apparently in the room. So this guy was basically living there. But what he was doing when he was living there, well, um, apparently he was killing a lot of things. <laughs> in front of the garage, there's a concrete slab that has shotgun shells embedded in it. I don't know if that's a tradition or what. And inside the garage, there's a massive meat grinder, a whole bunch of rabbit traps, 
and some very, very well-used butcher knives. And uh, there are some deer antlers hanging from the ceiling, so I figure this was kind of a hunt camp. I figure this guy kind of used this as his base, and he did some hunting and made sausages and whatever else, and it it's kind of cool. And I can see when he was doing this, because there are these mimeographed, uh, <clears throat> photocopied pictures from about the year 2001 that were of cartoons that were anti-Osama bin Laden. Like, one of them is an eagle sharpening his claws with a wanted poster of Osama bin Laden on it. And, uh, yeah, this guy was, you know, clearly upset about 9-11, as he should have been, and took it upon himself to post up these little pictures. And then there's one part where it's kind of sad in a way, but there was one section of the wall that he was using for photographs. And I happen to know that this fellow died before this property was sold. I don't think he died on the property, but he, he, this property was left and he died. And whoever got it after him uh, just kind of ripped the pictures off the wall. And I know this because the corners of the pictures are still there. There's thumbtacks with corners of pictures still in the wall. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I get it. It's a lot of work. But when I go in that garage now, I feel like I'm in somebody else's garage. I mean, we've paid for it. We own it free and clear. There's no doubt about that. But this was someone else's sanctuary. This was their happy place. And now it's mine. It's just kind of a little weird. But uh, it's also kind of nice. And before I leave this story, I'm hoping there aren't more stories. Because being on the river, this property does flood to some extent. And it's on a hill, so only part of the property floods. We're totally aware of that. But stuff from the river washes up. And we have found some unusual things. And there are three 50-gallon drums that are sealed that are on the edge of our property. And, well, uh, what's in those? I'm afraid to find out because it's not something good. <laughs> Whatever is in those, and they certainly seem full, it's something I don't want to know about. And, uh, yeah, hey, maybe we'll have a part two to this story, or just maybe it'll be in the newspaper. Product review. I have a problem with my sprinter. I know, you're shocked. But uh, the starter battery keeps draining on me, and I don't understand why. I have attached absolutely nothing to it. But it is an ambulance, so it's quite possible that there's some ambulance component that's draining the battery. Because when these ambulances are used in normal use, they're plugged in every night. So they can afford to have some drain on the starter battery because it isn't going to matter. Mine is not plugged in, and if it sits for a week, well, drains the battery. So I've got that burden to bear. But one way I thought about bearing that burden was to actually get a solar panel to charge the starter battery. I mean, why not? I've got solar panels charging the house batteries in the back. Why can't they charge a starter battery too? And I could have done some complicated thing where I can send power to either battery or even done some sort of a VSR type of situation. And it, you know what I did? I just bought a 20 watt solar panel. It's a very specific one. I'll give you the link from Amazon. And it's just this little nice, polite solar panel with cables that come out of it. And you can attach them to the battery with alligator clips. You can stick it in your windshield or stick it on your hood. It comes with suction cups and clips, and that's it. Now, if you've done any research on solar at all, you may think that 20 watts ain't much, and, and you're right. 
20 watts is not a lot. In fact, if you had 20 watts trying to charge your leisure battery, it may not even be able to keep up with the lights. 20 watts is about the same as the old iPhone chargers, or those white cubes that used to come with iPhones, and, and Androids had something similar. Those little one-amp chargers that will still charge a modern phone, but it will take like nine hours? Yeah, those. That's what you're getting out of this. So if your battery's dead, this thing isn't going to help very much. But will it maintain a battery over time? I think so. I haven't had a chance to test it out completely. But when I hook it up to the van, it is charging. There's a light on it. I can see that it's charging. And I'm hoping that the amount of solar that's coming in is more than the drain. And yes, I can test that with a multimeter, I know. But for 40 bucks, this is not a bad thing to have. Plus, you can use it for other things. Like if I'm using my portable battery, my portable power station, it can charge that too. It's just another way to get free energy. And it's also extremely portable. However, you're not going to charge big things with this. If you are primarily concerned with your cell phone and you want to charge your cell phone with one of these during the day, absolutely, that will work. Anyway, if you think you have a use for a 20-watt solar panel, I will have a link in the show notes. Again, solar panels don't do anything except charge batteries. That's all solar panels do. So don't think you're going to run anything with this solar panel. But if you do have a battery to charge, yeah, this one might actually do it. A place to visit. So this post is Fragile, which is Italian, as you know. Um, actually, it's not. This post is, uh, this is about Oklahoma, actually. In Chickasha, that's Chickasha, C-H-I-C-K-A-S-H-A, Chickasha, Oklahoma, there is a very large object uh, right near the road. And it's lit up at night. It's 40 feet tall. And it sits upon a 10-foot base, so this thing's 50 feet in the air. It's built out of fiberglass, and it was brand new in November 2022. And this object is a major award. And if you haven't got the Christmas Story references yet, I shall now reveal it. It is a giant lady leg lamp. Now, if you've not seen A Christmas Story and seen the major Fragile Award, this is a lady's leg with a lamp on it. That's it. It's not a prop from Jaws, although that would be kind of hilarious. It's this thing that people used to buy. It's a lady's leg with a lampshade on it and has a light in it. And I don't know why people bought these things, but it was made fun of in A Christmas Story. And, well, Chickasha, Oklahoma, claims to be the birthplace of the giant lady leg lamp. And, heck, you can go visit. They have built this massive monument <laughs> to the giant lady leg lamp. And, yes, it lights up. So if you can see it at night, that would be the best time. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. There's lots of stuff to see out here in the U.S. Now, this thing is right on Route 44, which is basically Route 66, and uh, it's in Chickasha. I mean, that that's the closest town. There's really not that much else in that neighborhood. It's not too far from Oklahoma City, so you can make a day trip out of it. But, uh, you know, I think you need to have your picture taken in front of this thing just to show how much of an eclectic traveler you are. And... I seem to end up in Oklahoma more often than I ever plan on it. And the next time I go, I'm going to make an effort to go visit the Chickasha Lady Leg Lamp Monument. Resource Recommendation 
I don't know why I'm so obsessed with this idea, and I keep pushing this on you, but I have a water problem. <laughs> so despite the fact that the property we have is on a river and that we have a well that we haven't turned on yet, we have a fresh water issue because basically we have to truck in all our fresh water. And typically what I'll do is in our condo in Chicago, I'll fill up two five-gallon jerry cans with water and bring them down every single time. And it's not the end of the world. Ten gallons of water is plenty for a weekend. And we can always get more water in town. But what bugs me is I notice that a lot of the water we use isn't for drinking. In fact, very little of it is. It's for flushing toilets and washing dishes and that kind of a thing. And, you know, you don't need drinking water for that. River water would actually be fine for all of that. But due to the nature of how the property is, it's actually difficult to get water out of the river. But there's the rain. This may sound ridiculous, but if you're in a situation where you need water, collect rainwater. I mean, it's actually not legal in Western states. You've got that to worry about, but... You have a vehicle with a big flat roof, and that collects a lot of water. So what I have is on the top of the Winnebago, which is the flattest of flat roofs, all the water comes down out of one corner, which even if you level a vehicle, it's probably all going to come down one corner. And I just collect it in a five-gallon bucket. And then I use that water. I use it to flush the black tanks. I use it to flush toilets. I use it to water plants when I need to. It's very useful water, and it's one less jerry can full of water that I have to deal with. So this is one of the reasons I really like the two-tank water system where you have known good drinking water that's in one place, and then just good water that you can use for everything else because its source can be more questionable. I would absolutely be fine with putting river water into my fresh water tank because I know that I don't ever use it for drinking water. I will always bleach it. I'll pour some bleach in to mix it up to, you know, kill anything harmful. Now, the Illinois River connects to the Chicago River. There's industrial problems you have to worry about too. This would not be good water to drink at all. But if I'm the only one using the rig, I know not to drink the tap water, so it's not that big of a deal. Just consider that you have this resource of water that's falling from the sky in many places. Why not take advantage of it? Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode. As always, music is by Simon Wagg. If you're curious about this Discord thing, yes, we have a channel. It's called built to go a Discord channel. Surprising, I know. And you can find a link to that at builttogo.com. It's in any of the podcast episodes. Until next time, remember the wise words of W.H. Auden, who said, Thousands have lived without love, but not one without water.